98K News. It's 11 o'clock, I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. Police make mass arrests in protests against the National Anthem Bill. The pan-democratic camp tries to stall the debate in LegCo, but to no avail. And things are generally smooth as senior secondary students return to school. Police have arrested more than 360 people in protest in various areas against the proposed national anthem legislation as debate resumed in LegCo. The arrests were made mainly in Admiralty, Central, Causeway Bay and Moncock. And as night fell, more street protests were staged in Moncock. Several explosions were heard after a blaze broke out on Nathan Road near Argyle Street. Priscilla Ng has more on the protests earlier in the day. Hundreds of people gathered in Central around Petter Street, voicing their opposition to the anthem legislation and chanting slogans linked to the anti-government protests that erupted last year. They were repeatedly warned by the police to disperse or risk being arrested for taking part in an illegal assembly. Soon after, riot officers charged across the roads and fired pepper balls at the protesters. Dozens were arrested and taken onto police vans. There were similar scenes in Causeway Bay, as arguments broke out between police and demonstrators. Some were intercepted by officers with their belongings searched. Dozens were corralled onto a pavement outside Heisen Place and ordered to sit on the floor. Some were allowed to leave after officers took down their details, while others were taken away by the police. In Mongkok, officers were seen searching and questioning people, some in school uniform. One man was reportedly injured after being subdued by police, with online videos showing his face covered in blood. In Admiralty, scores of people were arrested after they were accused of defying police warnings to leave an area on Queens Road East near Justice Drive. The force said on its Facebook page that protesters had blocked roads and disrupted traffic, adding that while officers show restraint and respect people's right to express their opinion, they must not violate the law. Earlier, a 14-year-old student was among at least 16 people arrested over various suspected illegal activities that took place before the protests erupted. In one of the cases, police say they seized several petrol bombs from two teenagers in Shamshoi Po, and a couple of drivers are accused of dangerous driving for travelling too slow along the Cross Harbour Tunnel. LegCo President Andrew Leung has rejected attempts to stall the debate on the anthem bill. He threw out several adjournment motions proposed by pan-democratic lawmakers. Andrew One of the Democratic Party, for one, says he wanted to discuss issues relating to proposed national security legislation before the resumption of the anthem bill debate. It seems that the lesson no security law will be passed tomorrow in national congress and it will have an enormous impact in the dollar pack system. I'm afraid that the depreciation of Hong Kong dollars. But the president, without hearing any words from my mouth, and just say I will wheel out because he will not allow any delay of the procedure. The second reading of the anthem bill resumes tomorrow. The Chief Secretary has played down media reports suggesting foreign judges may be barred from handling cases relating to national security in future. Matthew Cheung made it clear details of Beijing's proposal to impose national security laws here are still being hammered out, and such reports are speculative. Legal sector lawmaker Dennis Kwok says Hong Kong never screens judges based on nationality or ethnicity, and the Reuters report, if confirmed, would severely hurt the city's judicial independence. 
There are many foreign judges in different levels of Hong Kong courts dealing with different kind of cases every single day. We never make a distinction between them and the so-called Chinese judges. Now, if that happens, that would dealt a serious blow to the judicial system in Hong Kong, and also I would say it means the end of one country, two systems. Things were generally smooth as senior secondary students returned to school after a four-month class suspension due to the coronavirus pandemic. Students had their temperatures taken before they were allowed in, and they were required to wash their hands before entering the classroom. In some schools, the morning assembly was cancelled to prevent students from congregating. Hong Kong has reported one more imported COVID-19 case. The latest patient is a 24-year-old man who returned from the United States yesterday. He's being treated at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Hong Kong now has gone 13 days without a local coronavirus case. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. The Journalists Association has warned Security Secretary John Lee against spreading rumours and urged him to be cautious in his words and actions. The strongly worded statement came after the minister told LegCo that people posing as journalists obstructed law enforcement officers and even took part in illegal and violent acts. The JA says Mr Lee must not treat unverified rumours or his subjective opinions from what he saw on television as facts. It accused the official of failing in his duty to dispel rumours of fake reporters aimed at smearing the media. Instead, it says Mr Lee has declared multiple times without providing evidence that there'd been fake journalists at protest sites and even alleged that such people had tried to help free subdued suspects. The Department of Justice has been urged to explain why it dropped charges against a female relative of a police officer in a drugs case, despite opposition from the magistrate in charge. The 22-year-old woman was arrested and charged with drug trafficking when she tried to pick up a parcel sent from France containing three kilos of ketamine. Prosecutors decided to drop the case, citing insufficient evidence, even though the magistrate said there's a good chance she would be convicted. Legal sector lawmaker Dennis Kwok believes at the very least the woman could have been charged with drug possession. He says the case gives the perception that police and their family members are receiving special treatment. I would urge the Director of Public Prosecution to come out and explain why they have decided to withdraw the charges, especially cases of public concern, especially when the public are already very concerned, deeply concerned about the neutrality, impartiality of the uh, prosecution system now practiced by the DOJ. A government-appointed committee tasked with overseeing an annual pay trend survey has endorsed findings recommending that civil servants receive a salary increase of between 1.15 and 1.98 per cent. The survey looks at salary movements in the private sector in the past year. The committee's chairman, Lee Learn Fai, said findings of the survey were one of the factors to be considered by the government when finalising pay adjustments of civil servants. We just endorse the figures because last year the change of private sector's salary change. Uh, we endorse the figures we found in the survey. Uh, it reflects the period of time because the survey period is from last year, April 2nd, up to this year's April 1st. I think we reflect the facts, what has been happened. The, the figures clear, the figures true, and then we give the figures to the government for their consideration. 
In Beijing, CPPCC Chairman Wang Yang has stressed that China has accomplished major strategic achievements in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. His comments came as the annual plenary session of the country's top political advisory body drew to a close. The CPPCC has also approved a key appointment. A vice chairwoman of the body, Li Bin, will also take over as secretary general, replacing Xiao Baolong, who's now the head of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office. In a few hours, a judge in Canada will deliver a decision on the fate of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. The United States is seeking her extradition, accusing her of committing fraud by lying to a U.S. bank. But her defense team says the case hinges on violations of American sanctions against Iran, which Canada and other U.S. allies have repudiated. The judge is to decide whether charges against her would stand up in Canada. She may walk free as a result. The eldest daughter of the Huawei founder was arrested in December 2018 during a stopover in Vancouver on a U.S. warrant. Police in Japan have arrested the man suspected of killing 36 people in an arson attack at an animation studio in Kyoto last July. Shinji Aoba was arrested in hospital after being judged to have recovered sufficiently from life-threatening burns. From Tokyo, here's the BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes. According to Japanese media, Mr Aoba has confessed to carrying out the attack on the Kyoto animation studio last July. Eyewitnesses say he used petrol from two large containers set fire to the ground floor of the animation studio. The building was filled with animation materials and was rapidly engulfed in flames. Many of the 36 who died were young animators trapped on the upper floor. The youngest was just 21 years old. Some reports have suggested the suspect bore a grudge against the studio, accusing it of plagiarising his own work. Also in Japan, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's cabinet has approved a new 1.1 trillion US dollar stimulus package to help spur the economy hit by COVID-19. It includes significant direct spending. It will be funded partly by a second extra budget and followed a similar stimulus package unveiled last month. Japan's total spending to fight the outbreak's economic fallout now accounts for about 40% of GDP. Protests have erupted in the U.S. city of Minneapolis over the death of an African-American man after he was arrested by the police and pinned down by the neck. In a case reminiscent of Eric Garner put in a police chokehold in New York in 2014, George Floyd said repeatedly, I can't breathe, before he died. Evan Frost, a journalist with Minnesota Public Radio, has more on the protests in Minnesota's largest city. People are very upset, but it's not the first time we've been through this. Um, with Philando Castile being shot by a Saint or a Saint Anthony police officer a few years ago, people are upset, and despite the pandemic, there was still a, a quite large protest. People actually started showing up at the site where he was detained and built a make, makeshift memorial, and by the middle of the day, streets in the area were actually shut down. I think the protesters are glad that there's been swift action taken in firing the officers, but. The calls of the protests are for prosecution and conviction, not just them losing their jobs. The International Labour Organization has found that more than one in six young people worldwide have stopped working since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Here's the BBC's Imogen Folks. The pandemic is, the ILO says, inflicting a triple shock on young people. Not only are their jobs disappearing, but education and training has been disrupted and opportunities to enter or move within the labour market seriously reduced. More than one in six people aged between 15 and 24 have had to stop work. 
Those who are still employed have seen their hours cut by an average of 23%. And the ILO analysis shows many young people still working are in informal and low-paid jobs. The Oscar-winning Mexican director Alfonso Cuaron has backed calls to ensure that thousands of domestic workers laid off in the country because of the coronavirus continue to be paid. The BBC's Candice Piet has that story. Cuaron's 2019 film Roma cast a spotlight on the lives of Latin America's housekeepers. Two of the film's actors have also joined the campaign, including the lead, Yalitza Aparicio, who plays an indigenous girl who works in the home of a middle-class family. Organisations supporting more than two million Mexican domestic workers say there's little protective legislation for their members, who mostly work informally, with no social insurance. They say many employers have asked their domestic workers to stay away during the pandemic to protect their family's health, but have not committed to continuing to pay their employees' wages. In sports, Bayern Munich now have a seven-point lead in the Bundesliga after beating Borussia Dortmund 1-0 in a top-of-the-table clash. Joshua Kimmich scored the only goal of the match and his teammate Thomas Muller likes what he saw. I think it was a, a long hang time of this ball and everybody, but I had a good feeling from the first moment because uh, Roman Bucchi He's a great keeper, but uh, one of his strengths is that he is maybe one or two steps outside of his goal uh, because maybe he is not uh, the longest arms. And so with this one or two steps in front, he tried to have a, be have a better angle. And Joshua saw that brilliant and was a beautiful goal. Uh, the rest of the game were maybe missed chances, but a lot of work and a lot of passion. Maybe with the ball, not our best, but with the heart, and that's the most important thing. The governing body of auto racing is asking whistleblowers to come forward. It's launched a hotline where alleged violations of sporting ethics and integrity can be reported. The BBC's Shoujo Saka has more. Formula One's governing body has set up an online 24-hour ethics and compliance hotline for whistleblowers to report suspicious behaviour or concerns of possible misconduct in motorsport. F1 is set to introduce a $145 million budget cap for teams next season, with whistleblowing seen as a component of that. The sport faced controversy last season when the legality of Ferrari's engine was under scrutiny. Meanwhile, the McLaren team expect to make 70 of its 800-strong workforce redundant with a second phase of redundancies next year once the budget cap comes into force. There are set to be a total of 1,200 redundancies across the McLaren group after the coronavirus crisis hit sales of their supercar and advertising revenue. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Police make mass arrests in protests against the National Anthem Bill. The pan-democratic camp tries to stall the debate in LegCo, but to no avail. And things are generally smooth as senior secondary students return to school. The news from RTHK. RTHK, Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. The International Commission of Jurists has expressed grave concern about proposed national security legislation in the SAR and called on the National People's Congress not to push ahead with it. The ICJ says the language used by the national legislature was troubling and there was a well-substantiated fear the new security law could be abused. The Commission's Director for Asia and the Pacific, Frederick Rowski, told Richard Pine about their concerns. Past attempts to bring national security legislation into effect in Hong Kong have included vague 
ambiguous, poorly defined language. And uh, we have no doubt that this is going to be used to suppress speech, to apply criminal penalties to critics and protesters. We've, we've seen the use of the public order ordinance, for instance, in this manner and in violation of international human rights standards. There's also worrisome language coming out of Beijing about the impacts on foreign organizations and the potential even criminal penalties for engagement with foreign organizations. We've seen this problem elsewhere. Take India, for instance, where it's nearly impossible for civil society activists and others to engage with or receive any funding from foreign organizations. So those are all concerns about content based on past experience. And of course, we share the same concerns as everyone else about process and that the, in, and the indications that the Legislative Council will be bypassed. Of course, this undermines democratic principles. It's also in violation of the spirit, if not the letter, of the basic law. So it's a kind of one-two punch here. It's a lot of concern about the use and abuse of the potential legislation, but again, the, the, the manner in which it's proposed to be, to be uh, introduced is itself undermining freedoms of expression, association, and political participation in Hong Kong. The government in Beijing, as well as the government here in, in Hong Kong in the SAR, have sought in uh, recent days to allay people's concerns, saying freedoms will be protected. Do you think that it is possible to allay those concerns, given the, the way that this proposed legislation is, is going to be enacted? Well, we've always believed there are better ways to engage, but allaying the concerns by by saying, don't worry, there's no reason for anybody to believe that, obviously, given the history here. I think we know the impacts of this. We know that it's going to lead to unrest. We know that in response to that unrest, there's going to be more excessive use of force by the police. It's easy to predict the future here. So our advice and the, the easiest way to allay concerns is, in fact, to subject any such legislation to a proper, transparent and democratic process. But, of course, we know that legislation that's introduced along the lines of, of what's been attempted in the past is not going to be acceptable to people because it threatens both speech association and it also criminalizes potentially a wide range of um, activity that doesn't require criminalization. I mean, in fact, the laws in place in Hong Kong are more than adequate, I would say, to, to manage the security situation. So we'd suggest that fears can be allayed most easily by honoring the basic law, democratic principles, and introducing any legislation or any other new policy via the democratic process. You know, we're also concerned about where this ends up, if it ends up in front of the courts. Preserving the independence of the judiciary in Hong Kong is also of concern to the ICJ. We're an organization of jurists, of judges, and lawyers. And you know, a legal challenge to something like this is, again, going to put the judiciary on a collision course with Beijing. And we also have concerns about the impacts of that, of the, the potential impacts of, of undermining not only the democratic governance in, in Hong Kong, but the role of the judiciary in protecting democratic principles and the basic law. Mm, um, Beijing and the Hong Kong government have um, played up the necessity of this national security legislation, and they've also been batting away criticism from other countries as well as international organizations. So why should authorities here actually listen to critics from overseas? Well, I certainly would not frame it as a criticism from overseas. I mean, this is a criticism that emanates from the people of Hong Kong, and it's not a new one. This is a concern 
that has been there from the beginning and has been exacerbated by actions taken by Beijing over the last year or so. And I mean, the second response to that is international law is also not a critique from outside. China is part of the international community. They're an active member of the United Nations. They are themselves obliged and committed to respecting these principles. Now, that may sound a bit idealistic. As a practical matter, of course, we do not expect Beijing to turn around and simply listen to what the International Commission of Jurists or other members of the international community say. So in addition to highlighting the dangers to the international standards and the democratic framework of Hong Kong, you know, the other argument is that this is in no way in the self-interest in the long run for China to provoke unrest, to create an even greater crisis in Hong Kong does not serve the interests of the people of Hong Kong. And I really do believe it doesn't in the long run serve the interests of Beijing. So, you know, there's, there's no reason to be optimistic that international pressure alone will cause Beijing to make an about face on this. But there are both pressures and incentives internal to China and certainly in Hong Kong that we hope will act to pressure the Chinese government to either not introduce the legislation or to reconsider the manner in which they have expressed the intention to do so. India is wilting under a heat wave, with temperatures reaching 50 degrees Celsius in some areas. New Delhi recorded its hottest May day in nearly 20 years, with the mercury topping 47 degrees. The country is also hit by swarms of desert locusts, devastating crops in the country's heartland. All this as India continues to battle the coronavirus outbreak. The number of cases has now topped 150,000. RTHK's New Delhi correspondent Murali Krishnan spoke to Anna Marie Evans. We normally do see a surge in temperatures across North India around this time, across the desert state of Rajasthan, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh and Maharashtra. But this is a very, very severe heat wave. And we just transited from a nice, good spring straight into a heat wave. And I was talking to many people about uh, the reason for this heat wave is because of the powerful cyclone, which we saw exactly a week back, Cyclone Amphan, that struck both West Bengal, Odisha, and Bangladesh. Apparently, what it had done also was suck out the moisture from other parts of the country, and therefore we're seeing right now a heat wave you know, blowing past us. And this is going to persist for quite a while. It started on May 22nd, and according to the Met Office, it'll run on till May 22nd. So we're going to see a searing heat and I mean it's it's very few people venture out right now and also considering that you know the lockdown is still in effect and it's a fourth phase you're not seeing much movement of vehicles or as well as people so that's where it stands. And uh, in terms of, so not only have you been having these uh, very high temperatures but also the country's been hit by swarms of desert locusts. Yes, absolutely. In fact, you're looking actually at a triple whammy out here in terms of the heat wave, the, the pandemic, and now locusts as well. What we're seeing over the last few days, which is now aggravated, is aggressive swarms of locusts. They've entered Rajasthan from adjoining areas in Pakistan, and they have been giving sleepless nights to farmers and authorities out there. Apparently, a huge swathes of Rajasthan, 22 out of 33 districts, they are under what is known as a locust attack. And it's now spreading across two parts of Gujarat, 
to Madhya Pradesh and even the western state of Maharashtra. The first swarms were sighted along the India-Pakistan border on May 11th, but it has actually accentuated. There are very scary and frightening images which I saw on television about this locus, how they have actually sort of sometimes have even entered neighborhoods in the state capital, Jaipur. So um, what scientists have point out is that it's all started from the Horn of Africa, where excess rains triggered a breeding boom. And then from there, it's entered India now, and after a round of breeding in Balochistan, Iran, Pakistan. And they're apparently here to stay for a while. But what is the bigger worry and concern among farmers is that, you know, their vegetation. Locusts, as we all know, they attack stems, fruits and seeds, and even crops like millet, rice and cotton, and they're hoping that, you know, this does not get destroyed. And most of the states which are affected are the ones which are reeling under COVID-19, as well as the ongoing heat wave. Yeah, what's the latest on COVID-19 in India? heartening in, in some ways is that the fatalities have not been so much across the 150,000 or so in terms of people who have been affected. Uh, half of those are still considered active. But India has only seen so far about 4,337 deaths so far. And that's a low rate compared to the worst hit Western countries like, you know, Italy, the U.S. and the U.K. But nevertheless, what the scientists as well as epidemiologists in India say is that a surge is bound to happen. They said that the lockdown, if it hadn't been for the lockdown, we had a, uh, India would have witnessed close to around 80,000 deaths or even more by now. And uh, they're basically employing a mathematical formula, which is what many, many people are doing in, across countries. But they see that a surge is impending and it could happen in June and would last until July. But precautions are still being taken. The end, the fourth phase of the lockdown ends on May 31st. And uh, I think a, a a series of advisories as well as uh, directions are going to be sent out in the next couple of days. The economy has opened up in some ways, but like I said, they don't want the, the, cure, to, uh, the cure to be worse than the disease. And that's what's going to, uh, and, that's, and therefore I think uh, this is what's going to happen, how, how, the, how India has got to prepare itself in the coming months. It took Thomas Varner 10 days to win the Ititarod sled dog race in Alaska, but it's taken him much, much longer to get home. In fact, he and his 16 dogs are still trapped in the state nine weeks on, unable to fly home because of the coronavirus lockdown. But he could be saved thanks to an old classic plane. He spoke to the BBC's Tom Hagler. Well, I got this message in my messenger and uh, said... They cancelled the deal of flying a plane home, and then I started looking into it, and uh, and it was this plane sitting here in Fairbanks, actually, that was going to go back to Norway to the museum. But they actually cancelled the deal, so I have been working hard to get the deal going in, and now it looks like next week we are flying. So it's this old classic plane that just so happened to, to there's a plan to get it to a museum in Norway, and you might be able to hitch a lift, so to speak. Yes, that's uh, it's actually one of the first Norwegian airlines that uh, brought and safe. That was one of the first uh, airlines in Norway actually had for passengers plane. So it's going to also be a little historic travel because this will be, you know, a propel plane going back, you know, crossing over again. And it's, that's many, many years ago. Well, you and your dogs, I'm sure, get first class seats. You might well be the only passengers, I take it. Oh, it's going to be a little loud, I think, and a little, uh, a little uh, cold. You know, it's not heating in the plane, and it's, it's a cargo plane. It used to be now, so it's going to be, going to be a little rough, uh, rough ride.
Right, now, you did this sled dog race. I don't know how you fared in it, but, but you finished, and then suddenly you found yourself stuck. So for the last nine weeks, what have, what have you and your dogs been doing and eating? Well, we've been going on camping trips and training, and, uh, and I'm really lucky because I have a lot of friends there, and some of my best friends are in Alaska. So, so I'm in a kind of good position that uh, I have friends around me that I, you, know, you can spend time with and, uh, and yeah, have fun. Are they huskies, by the way? What sort of dogs? Yes, they are Alaskan huskies. They are not the purebred, but they, you know they have the you know the polar look, you know the fur and everything. Ah, so they're Alaskan huskies. So they're not getting homesick then for Norway. They feel fine up there. Oh yeah, you know dogs are a little better than us humans to live in the moment. You know they are they are happy. You know if you, they get you know food, exercise, and you treat them good, they are pretty happy. So we. We people have to learn of the dogs, I think. Right. And I understand your wife left you. She didn't hang around for you and the dogs. Is that right? Well, when we heard, uh, she heard that, you know, the, that the planes were shutting down, she just jumped on the plane and got back to the kids and the rest of the dogs. So she had to go home during the race, actually. Oh, oh really? You didn't feel deserted by her then? Well, the thing in dog marching, especially that long distance when you're going that many days, you are really good to not worry what's going to be around the corner. So, you know, you're going to just get it out of your head very very quickly. So this is one of the mental parts of the dog marching. So it's not, it's not only, you know, this was kind of special, but, you know, you have a lot of different negative things happening during a race like that that you have to deal with. I can imagine. It must, it's, it's, it's tough out there. It's just you and the dogs, is it? Yes, and you and the dogs for about nine days. And uh, the, mo the biggest problem for the musher is that you don't sleep so that much. I had 17 hours of sleep in the nine days, so, you know, it's, it's not a lot. God. And, and I understand back home in Norway, you got five kids and you got even more huskies there. So she's really got her hands full. Yeah, she's has a lot of work. So I have a little, you know, feeling a little bad for her because, you know, she's working and having the kids and doing dealing also with all their dogs. So... I think it's you know good to get home to help her a little. Right, and you got the money to to survive because it must be expensive taking the dogs out every night to eat. Sixteen dogs and you table for seventeen. I don't know if that's allowed under coronavirus lockdown. Yeah, I won. Uh, I won. Yeah, I won the race actually. So so I got some you know the prize money, but I'm <laughs> I'm using a lot now. <laughs> Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Todd Harding from our newsroom. To prevent the spread of COVID-19, try flexible working hours and staggered meal breaks. Wear a mask on public transport. Avoid crowded lifts. Try not to hold large meetings and reduce face-to-face -face contact with colleagues. Avoid meal gatherings. Stay away from crowds after work. Wash hands frequently and keep the workplace clean. If you feel unwell, stay away from work and see your doctor. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to remember. 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 Yes, this is it. Our kind of music, hmm? nostalgia, with Ray Cordero all the way until 1 a.m.
That was the beautiful theme from Moulin Rouge, Mantovani. Mantovani and his orchestra. He's our good friend Jim Reese. Cali Rose, stop crying. I'll come back to you some sunny day. You know that I'll be pining Every hour a year while I'm away Dry those big brown eyes and smile Vanish all those tears and please don't cry again and hold me Mexicali Rose goodbye 